All right, Jan, uh, Jan, John chapter 3, if you would turn there in your Bibles. We're presently, as you know, going through the Gospel of John, and last week we began chapter 3, and there's so much here in chapter 3, so we're going to spend a few weeks in this chapter. I mentioned last week it's one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. You know, usually with Bible teachers, wherever they're teaching seems to be their favorite place to teach, you know, their portion of scripture. But I, I really do love the Gospel of John, and I love chapter 3 because of uh, the things that were said and the things that were done. And of course, in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, we have the Gospel, we have the entire Gospel message in miniature. So Lord, we pray that as we look at your word again this morning, we pray, Father, that you would speak to us. We pray, Father, that you would open our, not only our minds, but our hearts to your word. We pray, Father, for the believer that they would be inspired to share the gospel with non-believers. When we pray for the non-believer, Lord, that you would just open their hearts up to your gospel, to your truth, to your good news this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were with us last week, you know the context. The context Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was a religious leader among the Jews, and he comes to Jesus by night, and he says that uh, we, so he's speaking for others, he's representing others, he says, we know you're from God, for no one can do the things you do unless God was with him, these signs that you're doing. And uh, we ended last week with verse 9, where we see Nicodemus asking a question, And the question was, how can these things be? And of course, the things that he was referring to is the fact that Jesus said, you must be born again. He said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then a few verses down, he says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So right off the bat, you see how important this particular chapter is and how important these words that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus were. Guys, look at chapter 3, verse 10. It says, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, And you do not receive our witness. I want you to note that Jesus did not say to Nicodemus, you're one of the teachers of Israel. Look at at the text. He says, you are the teacher of Israel. So right here, this is something, maybe you've kind of overlooked that uh, in times past reading it, you know. But apparently, Nicodemus was not just one among many, but Nicodemus became... Um, esteemed, he was honored among the people, he was one uh, of the Pharisees who really had a voice among the people, and so Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. And then he goes on to say, most assuredly I say to you, and he mentions we and then our. So we have to ask that question, Who's the we here? (laughs) Did Jesus have a mouse in his pocket, you know? I I think that the we, it could be referring to the Trinity. 
they could be referring to, and most likely it was referring to, Jesus and the prophets. And I say that because when Jesus said, you are the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things, that would be insulting. That would be a put down if Nicodemus had no way to know these things. What things? You must be born again. Nicodemus, you've already been born once. You need to be born again. You've been born of water. You've experienced a natural birth. Now you must be born of the Spirit. You need to be spiritually born again. And so what was he referring to? You know what's interesting, guys? As, as you look at the Scriptures, as you study the Scriptures, and it's important to remember that for the first century church, you know, um, uh, at least the first part of the first century church, their scripture was the scripture they always had. It was from Genesis to Malachi. That was their scripture. That was the word of God that they had, the inspired word of God. And in fact, whenever Paul refers to the scripture or the word of God, many times he's referring to that which has already been written. Now, of course, we know that the apostles, they were inspired to write their epistles, and, and we have the four gospel accounts, and we have the book of Revelation, and of course, we have now, you know, 66 books of the Bible, we have the full canon of scripture, I believe it's the full canon of scripture, nothing's lacking, and um, so we're, we're much more benefited, you know, blessed by the fact that we have the word of God, but for Jesus to say, in essence, you know what, Nicodemus, you should know these things. I think it's important to note that Nicodemus had expect, or Jesus had expectations for Nicodemus. I, I think that too often we let ourselves off the hook because we think there shouldn't be any expectations on us. But I'll tell you, we are blessed beyond the children of Israel. Many times we read through the, you know, the Old Testament. And we say, "Oh boy, if if I would have if I would have eaten manna that fell from heaven." If, if I would have seen the miracles that the children of Israel saw, if I would have been led by a pillar of fire by uh, night and a, a pillar of cloud by day, if these things, you know, if I was, I would never have rebelled. We need to understand that for the children of Israel, you know what they did not have? They did not have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. What does every believer have? Every true believer has the spirit of the living God dwelling within us. All that to say, I think that God has some expectations for us. Jesus surely had some expectations of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, not Nebuchadnezzar, of uh, <laughs> another story, another book, but of uh, Nicodemus. And what would he be referring to? I think that there are many, many references in the Old Testament where the Lord spoke about the life in the Spirit. You know, we see it in, uh, from the prophet Joel. We see it in Isaiah. We see it in Jeremiah. We see it um, in, in many of the prophets. Let me give you an example. Last week, I had you guys turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. Remember the valley of dry bones and all of that? And this week, I want to read to you from Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. It says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. 
And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Note that. I will put a new spirit within you. This is a promise for Israel. They hadn't experienced these things. This is a promise from God. He says, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then it goes on and says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. You know, guys, it is the redemptive work of Christ that makes salvation or being born again possible. If Jesus had not died upon the cross, there would be no means of spiritual birth. It is, it is by the Spirit of God that we have the power that enables us to live for and in the Lord. Um, a scripture I mentioned to the first service, it's a, a scripture I've gone to many times since we've been in the Gospel of John, and, and I'll continue to come back to this because I really believe that this is the framework of John's Gospel account. And you could turn back to it. It's in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. 12 and 13. Look at what it says there. This is uh, obviously... John's commentary on this, so Jesus was not speaking these words, but it's his comment. He says, but as many as received him, the him there, there is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were, note this, who were born. What are we dealing with in chapter 3? You must be born again. In chapter 1, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, so not natural death, birth that's not enough to just be born into the world nor of the will of man it's not even up to man to say I, I will to be born again you know but of God it is a supernatural work of God that we are born of the spirit now Jesus look at verse 12 it says back in chapter 3 if I told you earthly things and you do not believe how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things and then he says no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven that is the son of man who is in heaven now guys remember I made mention of it just a few moments ago that when Nicodemus came to Jesus uh, his initial you know kind of introduction the words that he spoke he says rabbi we know that you are a teacher come from god for no one can do these signs that you do unless god is with him and guys if we're paying attention jesus is doing something he wants nicodemus to understand nicodemus you're observant but you're not right i didn't just come from god i am god you say, where do you get that? Because he says, no one has ascended into heaven but one. That is the Son of God. Now, some of you, you might be puzzled, say, what is he talking about? You know, guys, we need to be students of the Word of God. I want to remind you that Adam wasn't in heaven, though he had been dead for a long, long time. And Abel, that 
good son of Adam and Eve. He wasn't in heaven. Abraham, the father of the faith, he wasn't in heaven. Moses wasn't in heaven. Noah wasn't in heaven. Daniel wasn't. I mean, you could just go right down the list. You say, well, where were they? They were in Abraham's bosom. Guys, listen, this is so important for us to understand. If we don't understand this, again, and, and because many times we don't understand what the Bible teaches, the impact of the work of Christ, uh, it just doesn't hit us like it should. No one had access to heaven until the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world died upon the cross. On one hand, the book of Revelation tells us that he is the lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. But it was still an event, it was still a thing that had to happen, and it did happen in history at a specific time. When Jesus died upon the cross and paid for the sins, whose sins? Our sins, Adam's sins, Abraham's sins, Daniel's sins, Moses, everybody's sins. See, guys, if we're not careful, we begin to read the scriptures differently. Well, you know, uh, the Old Testament saints, it was all about law. And we're not even correct when we say that because there was no law when God gave, made that covenant with Abraham. This is the argument that Paul gives in, in Romans and also Galatians. There was no law then. And yet the promise was binding God made the promise. He made the covenant. It was based upon faith. It was a binding thing. Before the law came. Before circumcision. Before all of these other things. And we need to understand that when Jesus said no one has ascended. No one has gone to heaven but the Son of Man. Um, it was a true statement. But when he died upon the cross... Remember what happened? Matthew tells us that when he died there and he was in complete and full control, even when he died, that some of the tombs there in Jerusalem were opened and some of the dead were resurrected on that day. It's kind of a portion of scripture that we read over and go, oh, that's interesting, you know. And then we're told about Jesus setting the captives free. And many times people misinterpret and say, well, yeah, the captives that were in hell. No, I believe the captives who were in Abraham's bosom. Remember, this was a, a place where those who had died in faith stayed until access to heaven was made possible through the sacrificial death of Christ. Then they were set free to enter into heaven. So, as you go through this and you're reading it, you need to kind of put yourself into uh, Nicodemus' sandals, if you will, because, because Jesus is challenging him. You should know these things, Nicodemus. I have expectations of you, Nicodemus. You're the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus. And of course, Nicodemus couldn't understand the finer details. We look back, and that's the problem. We have our Bibles, we have the New Testament, we look back with all of these details and we say, boy, what was wrong with them? Why didn't they figure this out, of course? And it wasn't clear to them then. In fact, guys, many times when you read the scriptures, I think of the psalm when David talks about how, you know, uh, he's really despairing of life. And in essence, he says, in death, you know, no one will praise you. 
It's almost as if David didn't even understand the whole eternal existence and what that would be like. And how could he know it? Because the revelation of these things really wasn't given until after Jesus came and taught and died and was resurrected. So Jesus, he says, if I tell you earthly things, here's an earthly thing. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must, you'll note that word must, that's an important word, the son of man be lifted up. And what's he referring to? Now, obviously he's referring to something that Nicodemus, Demas should have known. You guys know what it is, don't you? He's referring to what took place in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, children of Israel. I love that story because, you know, that account, because they go in, there's 70 members and all. It's a family. It's a large family that goes into Egypt. They go into Egypt. God shows them favor. They're able to stay in Goshen, kind of have their own little, you know, town, village there. Of course, over the 400 plus years that they were in Egypt, they began to grow, become a great nation. By the time they left uh, Egypt, uh, some believe that they were, could have been two million people. But we know that they left. They were driven out. Uh, you know, the Lord, over time, they lost favor with the pharaohs, and uh, you know it's kind of like who's Joseph? We don't even, that, that was so long ago. He's a historical figure. What does that mean to us? What does he mean to us? You know, the Egyptians would have said, and they had hard taskmasters on them. And as this difficulty was coming their way, the Lord was preparing them. When it was time to leave, they were going to be ready to leave. By the way, there's some life application in that. Sometimes we go through difficulties and we say, why am I going through this? Maybe it's because the Lord is preparing you for something. So when he says, now, you say, yes, Lord, I'm ready, you know. Maybe we'd be reluctant if we didn't go through the difficulties, the struggles. But the children of Israel, they go out into the wilderness. They have a journey from Egypt to the promised land. It's a journey that would take about two and a half weeks. Do you remember how long it took them because of the rebellion? 40 years wandering in the wilderness. But of course, the Lord took care of them. It seemed like almost immediately they began to complain, you know, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're, you know. And, and Numbers tells us that they begin to complain against Moses and against the Lord. And they said, we... Have you brought us out into the wilderness to kill us? Now, the question really wasn't directed toward God in that particular account. It was directed toward Moses. But they're complaining. And then they went on to say, you know, we loathe or we despise. We hate this bread. Now, it wasn't bread that was being baked in ovens. It was the manna that was raining down on them every morning. You think of how ungrateful the people were. We loathe it. We hate it. It's disgusting to us. And so we're told in Numbers chapter 21 that the Lord sent fiery serpents, and the fiery serpents began to bite the people. And so that got the people's attention, and they came to Moses, and they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, 
Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, so this is something that Moses was to make himself, and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, note that, it's not, it's not for just everyone, it's only for those who have been bitten. So if you haven't been bitten, it's not for you. But if you've been bitten, it's for you. And everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone when he, had, he or she had looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now we look at this. If you're a student of the Bible, you look at it and say, well, this is an interesting story, interesting account, because usually in the Bible, serpents are symbols of evil. We see that in um, Genesis, of course, the serpent. You know, the devil comes in the form of a serpent. That's another thing we should study. You know, people mock, you know, uh, I've seen this commercial. I've never watched the thing. It, I don't know where he's going. Maybe it's a leading question. But he says, uh, what kind of judgment is it that a serpent would be made to uh, move on its belly? Well, it would be a curse if the serpent did not move on its belly. So we make the assumption that we, we, we know what serpents do. Maybe serpents stood upright. Maybe serpents were in a different form. I, I don't know. But this was obviously part of a curse. So serpents, Genesis. Serpents, Isaiah chapter 27. We looked at that on Wednesday night. It doesn't speak of good things. It speaks of evil things. The book of Revelation, serpent, speaks of something evil. But here... In or there in uh, Numbers chapter 21, it's different. First of all, we know that Moses' serpent was made of bronze, and bronze is always associated with judgment. Guys, listen, I say it all the time, and it's true the Bible's not boring. There are so many things that you could glean from the Bible. And we start, when we start keying in and, and paying attention to what we're reading, what we're studying, the Bible comes alive that much more to us. In fact, I, I uh, didn't read the text for time's sake, but in Numbers chapter 21, you know, at the beginning of that text, it actually says that the children of Israel were going around Edom. Now, if you weren't familiar with the scriptures, you say, well, what difference does that make? Because later on, in the prophets, we see God pronouncing judgment upon Edom because Edom would not let the children of Israel go through their land. So they had to go around the land, making it that much more difficult. So there's, you know, you're looking at one thing, but then you get insight on another thing, and the pieces begin to come together. But bronze when you look at the tabernacle and then the temple eventually, the temple, and you have all of these things. You have the, the basin where the priests would wash themselves in the basin and, and you have the altar of incense and you have the altar where the offering was laid and you have, and, and you have all of these, you have bronze and bronze and bronze and bronze. And you say, what's up with bronze? Well, bronze in the Bible, as you go through the scriptures, bronze is associated with judgment, with judgment. And of course, um, the, the bronze serpent that, um, 
that Moses made, and he sat on a pole, so bronze serpent on a pole. This was a picture, this was a foreshadow of Christ. The Bible's not boring. When you finally come to grips with the fact that the Bible is about Jesus, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is declaring the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the I Am. It's about the Lord. And it becomes exciting when you're reading in Genesis or, you know, wherever you might be reading, you say, oh, there's our Lord, there's our Lord, there's our Lord. Here's another reference to our Lord. And so the bronze serpent, it, it did not speak of, um, it did not represent sin. It represented sin judged. And this is important. You say, oh, the details, details, I, these things don't matter. Oh, they do matter. And, and all the people had to do once they were bitten is to look upon the bronze serpent. There was a foreshadow of the cross. Now, of course, they wouldn't know this. How would they? How could they know this, you know, that one day Jesus will come up on the cross? But, but, but it's for us to look back and say, oh, Lord, you're so wonderful. I mean, you revealed these things long before they ever came to pass, you know. And so all they had to do is look at the bronze serpent and they would be saved. Now, it's important. They weren't saved from their sins, per se, as we're saved when we, when we call upon the Lord, but they would be saved from immediate and certain death. That's what they, so it's kind of a temporary thing, but, but I'll tell you, you know, people are dying. So here's the question you've got to ask yourself in the numbers account. How many people perish because they thought it was foolish to look at an object on a pole? And we can look and say, oh, you'd have to be a fool. You know, if you've been bitten by a fiery serpent, whatever that is, and it's killing people all around you, and people are dying all around you, why wouldn't you just simply look at the, the symbol, the, the, the fiery serpent on the pole? Why wouldn't you do it? It's so simple. And, you know, we could ask the same question when it comes to Christ. Jesus died upon the cross for our sins. The bronze serpent, it, it is a picture of sin judged and dealt with. And, you know, has your sin been judged and dealt with? And if it hasn't, it can be by placing your faith in Christ. If anyone, or if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. I think of how, in one sense, guys, kind of using symbolism, we've all been bitten. <laughs> Every one of us. We've been bitten by sin. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, you know, guys, the Bible teaches that we've inherited sin. Our parents sinned, not your mom and dad, but Adam and Eve. We're all under the same curse. We live, under, we, we live in an earth that's under the same curse. 
By the way, guys, a curse. What was the symbol of the curse in the garden? Thorns and thistles. Remember the ground will thorns and thistles. So that was something that was foreign. There were a lot of things that were foreign. Apparently, bearing children and having pain was foreign. God created women to have children without any pain whatsoever. Adam, working in the garden, it would have been pleasurable. No thorns, no thistles, no stinging nettles, no poison oak, <laughs> no, nothing jumping out to bite you or scare you, you know. It would have been glorious, but the, the symbol of the curse was thorns. And, and, and what did Jesus wear on the cross? Well, he didn't ask to wear that. They put it upon his head as, as a means of mockery, you know. Here's the king of the Jews. Let's give him a crown worthy of the king of the Jews. And they beat that thing, something like that, on his head. You see what I'm saying, guys, from... From Genesis to Revelation, it all points to Christ. And when we see this, it is glorious. He goes on, he says, um, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What does it mean for the Son of Man to be lifted up? Do you know that it actually, you're, most of us are probably thinking of one thing. Lifted up, it means the crucifixion. Daniel speaks about the Lord being lifted up. It's the crucifixion of Christ. But actually, being lifted up speaks of two things. It speaks of the crucifixion of Christ. And we see that in John chapter 12, verse 32. But it also speaks of the ascension of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 2. He's lifted up. It speaks of both his suffering and his exaltation or his glory. Jesus would be lifted up. And it says that he must be. Jesus is the one. He says this is something that must happen. He's the only one that could take away the sin of the world. And how did he do it? By being lifted up. He's the only one. And then he gets to... The reason for all of this, look at verse 15, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then John 3, 16, of course, one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I want you to note that twice in two verses, Jesus says, not perish, not perish. Everlasting life. What is everlasting life? I think too often, because we approach it in a very simplistic way, we say, well, everlasting life is life that never ends. You know, guys, there is a reason why God's people are not excited about being God's people. It's because we're not, we're not really meditating upon the word of God and seeing that, you know, there's much more here than meets the eye. Eternal life doesn't speak of just longevity of life or, you know, life that doesn't end. It speaks of a quality of life. It speaks of the life that God intended us to have. Again, going back to the garden, he created Adam and Eve, you know, he created Adam. And, uh, you know, he wanted, and he dwelt with Adam, and he walked with Adam in the cool of the day, 
And they had this union and this relationship with one another. And, and apparently Adam, you know, he could hear God and talk to God, maybe feel his touch. I think it was all the uh, Christophany, the incarnate Christ, you know, there in the garden with Adam. And, and when you read the fall, because it, you could read it in such a quick, you know, a few moments, you know. You read the account. It happens so quickly. We kind of assume that all of this happened like on, you know, it's just the first week and then everything fell to pot, you know. And, and I don't know why we come to that conclusion. We need to almost read the scriptures and just stop and meditate upon what we're reading. We need to ask questions. I wonder what it would have been like. We need to, in one sense, use the imagination that the Lord had given us. Not, not as a, you know, an, an idle type of thing, but just to kind of consider these things. You know, What would it be like? And then to take it further, what is it going to be like when I'm in the presence of the Lord? See, I think that many Christians, and it's because... You know, many pastors don't even teach Bible prophecy or what happens after death or these types of things. And I remember as a kid thinking, well, you know, you live your life and when you die, you go to heaven. That's it. End of the story. But when you read the Bible, you realize, man, there is so much more that's happening. That if you die and you're a believer, the Bible says, um, Absent from the body, present with the Lord. So there's not this soul sleep that some groups teach. We are present with the Lord. Immediately, we're in his presence. Where's our body? It's still here. How do you know it's still here? Because there will be a resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive and remain shall be cut up to meet the Lord in the air. See, and because we don't, we, we're not diligent students of the word of God, we, we think things like, well, why does there have to be a resurrection? It doesn't even make sense. And when we look at the scriptures, like, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you know, Paul goes into this whole thing because there were those in the early church in Corinth, apparently, that did not believe in the resurrection. And he says, you know, someone's like, you know, I imagine that being on the forehead, you know. If there is no resurrection, <laughs> we have no hope. If there is no resurrection, Christ has not been resurrected. If Christ has not been resurrected, we are dead in our sins. If there is no resurrected, resurrection we are the most pitiful people on the earth because we proclaim that there's a resurrection of the dead you see what i'm saying so present with the lord so person they die they go to be with the lord before the rapture of the church rapture of the church comes the rapture first thing that happens the resurrection the dead will be resurrected. So there's this union now of the resurrected body with the spirit of the believer who's with Christ. There will be this transformation that takes place. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. In fact, that same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
where he says, I have a mystery. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. What does that mean? We shall take this, this mortal body and it, will show, it shall become immortal. This perishable body and it shall become imperishable. Wow. So, well, with the Lord, resurrection happens. Then what? Well, then we come back to earth with the Lord. Jesus comes riding on that white horse. Apparently, we're coming with him. Guys, listen, the Bible's clear that once we're with the Lord, we're never not with the Lord. That's another thing we have to get through our heads and say, how glorious this is. You know, it's sad when a loved one dies, even when they know the Lord. But boy, we should get over it fairly quickly. If they know the Lord, I mean, how in the world can we be sad for them? Because they're in the presence of their Lord, if, if he truly was their Lord, and they're whole and they're complete. And, you know, I want them here suffering, you know, in their bodies so that they're with me, you know, and that's so selfish. But we come back to the earth and the Lord cleans up. Book of Revelation. Then what happens? He sets up a kingdom upon the earth for a thousand years. A thousand years? What am I going to do? Well, that depends on what you're doing now. That depends on how we're living our lives now, what we're doing now. What are you doing to serve the Lord now? Thousand years. See, people say, I don't want to hear about that. I don't believe in that. I don't know how many people, people who claim to be born again, and I'll tell you, I meet more that do not believe in a literal resurrection or a literal thousand-year reign or a literal rapture. I don't believe in the rapture. And when you stop and talk to people and say, do you believe the Bible? Yes, of course I believe the Bible. And you show them 1 Thessalonians or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you say, has this happened yet? No. When do you think this is going to happen? And usually they'll say, at the second coming. And then we could say, so you do believe in the rapture of the church. You just disagree on when it's going to happen, but you believe in it. Because it's an event that has not yet happened. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. See, we're not parrots just, you know, repeating what we hear. We're students of the word of God. Guys, it's glorious. John 3.16. I don't know how many times I heard John 3.16 before I was saved. Whoever believes, it's much more than an intellectual awareness. It means to trust in, to rely to re rely upon, to cling to. In light of Numbers 21, you know, that whole picture that we have there, it means to look to him, to Jesus, and to never stop looking to Jesus. Salvation, it is faith in Christ alone, faith in his person, faith in what he has done, what he has accomplished on the cross. It is faith. John 3, 16. I'm always out of time. But John 3.16, it is the gospel in miniature. Do you know, guys, if, if you don't really have interest or time or whatever it might be to really memorize scripture, would you please do yourself a favor and at least memorize this one verse in this one chapter of the Bible, John 3.16? Because... 
if you've shared the gospel with people, no doubt you've taken from this. Maybe you didn't, you know, quote it verbatim, but you've surely taken from it. This is the gospel in miniature. John 3.16, it tells us of the source of salvation. It's for God. It's not man. We didn't will ourselves to be saved, you know. We weren't good enough to be saved. Man, I'll tell you, I, I don't understand how people can be so prideful as Christians. Like somehow they've achieved it, you know. I, you know, I, I. I was thinking of someone, Nate and I were talking about them uh, just the other day, and a person used to fellowship here, and, and he was just such a miserable man, and, and uh, he uh, was just, angry and uh and yet he would come to our prayer meetings and he would pray and it was always this abstract thing and how god had given him this worldwide ministry worldwide ministry but even in that he was bitter toward god's people because somehow god's people were keeping him from taking hold of his worldwide ministry. He was so arrogant. The last time I talked to him here at church, you know, I, I, I kind of confronted him. I said, man, what is wrong with you? And he spit at me. And, um, and, and you know, he, whenever he sees people, he, he kind of confronted Nehemiah. And he, I mean, he's a gutsy guy, you know, confronting these men in the church, you know. But he's just a kind of a bitter type of person. But he's so full of himself. And I just think that is a man that does not understand the grace of God. That is a man that needs to be born again. That is a man who's not saved. That is a man who does not know that there is nothing in himself to make him accepted by God. We don't want to be a man like that. We want to be people who are humble. I think of John 3:16. It tells us of the motive of salvation so loved. It was God who loved. God wasn't waiting for humanity to say, "We love you, God." God says, "I love you." And how did he show it? Well, John 3.16 tells us, first of all, he tells us the target of his salvation, the world. And he tells us the gift of his salvation he gave. And it tells us the savior of his salvation, his only begotten son. And it tells us who can be saved. And I love this, whosoever. Isn't that wonderful? It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, you can be saved. You want to be saved? And it tells us of what we're saved from shall not perish. And it tells us the ultimate blessing of salvation, everlasting life. Do you know, let me read these words. They're not found in the gospel, though you might think that they would be found in the gospel. They're actually found in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 45, 22, the Lord said, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. We're going to partake of communion, so they're going to hand out the, um, 
the communion, if you'd like to partake, you just go ahead and take that, and we'll take it together. But I want us to think about that. Whosoever, whosoever, I'd said to the first service that um, thank you. I believe that we are the last generation of the church. I mean, I think, you know, you just look around at this world. And again, as a student of the Bible, we know that um, certain things happen have to happen, had to happen, you know. I think of how, you know, I've always had an interest and a love for Bible prophecy and I've studied it all the years that I've walked with the Lord and have gone to churches or been a pastor of this church, you know, for a long time and always went to churches where Bible prophecy was taught. And... Um, we would wonder sometimes, you know, you Antichrist will come upon the scene. It's interesting that, you know, there's this push to build the third temple in Jerusalem. Everything's ready for it, you know. They're, they're waiting. Of course, we've heard of late a lot about the red heifer, which is needed for the, you know, the priest and the other things there, you know, the ashes of the red heifer. But um, I think the majority of religious Jews in Israel, um, if you were to ask them, do you think that your temple will ever be rebuilt? Most of them will answer, yes, we believe that our temple will be rebuilt when Messiah comes. That when Messiah comes, he will rebuild the temple. And it seems, you know, from the book of Revelation and Daniel chapter uh, 9 and other places that Antichrist will enable the children of Israel to, to build their temple, that third temple in Jerusalem, and that many of the Jews will think that he is the Messiah until an event happens, and that event is the abomination that causes desolation. Abomination that causes desolation is when Antichrist puts on a wing of the, of the temple an image of himself, and the devil gives the image the ability to speak. And um, we're told that the time is coming when no one will be able to buy or sell without the mark of the beast on their right hand or on their forehead. And so, you know, we've looked at that, and there's been a lot of speculation over the decades. What in the world is going on, you know? And now, you know, here we live in a time where last weekend we saw three major banks collapse. And we've been hearing for months this digital currency. And it's not just something we hear in the United States of America. We hear it globally. And people say, oh, that... And to me, I think... That explains how you control buying and selling. If the bill in your pocket is no longer worth anything, and the only way to buy or sell is with your digital 
currency that can be tracked or stopped, that's control. I think, wow, just another, another of many, 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 many things to indicate that we are in the last of the last days. You say, make your point. My point is this. We should be zealous. We should be the most active generation sharing the gospel. Even if we're not sharing the gospel, we should be people who meditate upon the word of God rather than having kind of a half-hearted, apathetic approach to the word of God. I emphasize this all the time because I'm convinced that the word of God with the spirit of God prompts the child of God to share with those who need to know the Lord. And it's just kind of a, you know, it's a natural or supernatural flow of really walking with the Lord. But I just would pray that we'd be a people that are enthusiastic about our relationship with the Lord. Remember that story, that account. I, I don't like using the word story in our day because story has become like a fairy tale. But the account, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house for a meal. And so Jesus goes. I love that about our Lord, you know. He, he, we don't see him turning down an invitation. And he goes there, and there they are eating. And, and again, because we think like Americans with our homes and our style and everything else, and we wonder, how in the world did that woman get into the house? Most likely what they were doing is sitting in the courtyard of the house because it would have been the coolest place depending upon what time of day it was in that hot Israeli sun. But she comes in. She's not invited. She drops down at the feet of Jesus and she begins to anoint his feet. And the Pharisee, of course, who was, you know, full of himself and all that and came, invited Jesus, not because he wanted to enjoy some fellowship with Jesus, but no doubt to find some accusations against Jesus. And the Pharisee sits there and he says, if this man was truly a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is. And Jesus allows the thing to happen, you know, it just, and you wonder, again, guys, when you read the word of God, just slow down, just breathe. Think about it. I doubt that she ran in, it takes time. You know, those, the time can be an awkward thing, can it? You're going, oh, what's happening here? Make it end. Simon, you invited me into your house and um, you didn't greet me with a kiss, which was customary. You didn't wash my feet, which was customary. I mean, that's what you do if you have a, a guest that you have any respect for. I came into your house. I was your invited guest, but you treated me like an uninvited guest. And this woman came in, and she has anointed my feet with oil. 
Simon, you got to figure something out. And this is what Christians need to figure out today. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. So before you think, I guess I just wasn't that big of a sinner. Oh, no, you're plenty big of a sinner. You're all all rotten sinners, believe me. And you don't have to be any more of a sinner than you already are. And if you're forgiven by the Lord, what you need to do, what we need to do is think and appreciate the fact that we have been forgiven of our sins. And this is a sense of awe that I think many of us in this generation has lost the sense of awe. Maybe you have those moments. I hope you have those moments. I'm sure you have those moments. But I think, we need to, I think we need to cherish those moments when the Lord just speaks to our heart. And maybe we're, we're you know, we're foul things are coming out of our mouth or we have bitterness in our heart and we're just, you know, I want revenge or whatever it might be. And the Lord just, with that still small voice, because that's how he does it. He never yells at us. He always kind of does it in such a very subtle way. And you just feel convicted. Say, oh Lord, I'm sorry. Thank you, Lord. I don't know about you, but the longer I live and the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I appreciate his grace and my salvation. I'm not living a double life, you know. I'm not going out on Saturday partying and then coming here on Sunday to preach. I'm not doing that, but just living in this body. I've been delivered, but many times my mind and my body didn't get the memo you know. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the simplicity of the cross. We thank you, Lord, that you beckon us to come and to look upon you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Pray, Father, that we would be thankful. We pray that joy and thanksgiving would overflow from our lives because of what you've done and what you're doing presently. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for your offering. Thank you for the resurrection that is assurance that you are who you said you were. We love you and we partake together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.